0: Hey podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already, and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members, or click the link in the show notes. On to the show.
1: Fish people, fish people, look like fish, talk like people, fish
0: you're listening to the archaeology podcast network
1: hello and welcome to the dirt a podcast about archaeology anthropology and our shared human past I'm Anna.
2: And I'm Amber. And before we get started, uh, we're recording this on Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you, Anna. Oh, I'm thankful for you, buddy, and our show. Um, But I'm also thankful for our new patron, Alexa. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy the bonus content. um, As for our regularly scheduled podcast, which is this one that you're listening to, this week, something is fishy, (laughs) or as the case may be, Someone is fishy.
1: We're talking fish people, baby. Fish people. Whether they're half fish, into fish, or inside a fish, this episode is the result of two hosts that have had a very long year and refuse to back down from a stupid joke. So it's all fish, all week, all the way down. While we're going to be bopping around a few times and places today, we should probably start off by getting the obvious one out of the way. So first up, let's discuss some mermaids in a segment we're calling Mersons of Interest.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So dumb. So, um, first, our first source um, is from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA's National Ocean Service, um, and their publication, Are Mermaids Real? (laughs)
1: Um, Now, I don't know... (laughs) I, which they must have created after getting just one too no, many of those I know, questions.
2: And I know I know why. And I'm about to tell everyone why they had to publish this. So first, I, I don't know anything about the ocean. And truth be told, I'm very scared of it. So far be it from me to criticize the National Ocean Service's choice of words here. But this very brief statement absolutely does not know what's up. Um, <laughs> so forewarning there. Uh, but again... Let us not forget that the NOAA had to publish this. So it first came out in like 2012 in response to Mermaids, The Body Found. Do you remember this? Oh, no. No. Um, So Mermaids, The Body Found Um, wasn't a documentary, but people thought it was a documentary because it was on Animal Planet. Um, It was a like it was fiction. And nobody said that it was oh, real. <laughs> no. But people like saw it on Animal Planet and they flooded the NOAA with calls until they finally were like, no, stop it. <laughs> and so it's <laughs> just like super sad, but but also like good on them for like <laughs> answering the call and for dealing with it in kind of a reasonable way. Yeah. So the statement <laughs> reads as follows. No oh. evidence of aquatic humanoids has ever been found. And then in smaller font, mermaids. Those half-human, half-fish sirens of the sea are legendary sea creatures chronicled in maritime cultures since time immemorial. Um, ancient, Actually, <laughs> sirens <noticed>. aren't mermaids. <laughs> just, this is only but the beginning. Uh, the ancient Greek epic poet Homer wrote of them in the Odyssey. So also, Homer wasn't necessarily a guy. It was it wasn't just one person. <laughs> so in the ancient Far East... <sighs> mermaids were the wives of powerful sea dragons and served as trusted messengers between their spouses and the emperors on land. Huh. The aboriginal people of Australia. Which ones? We don't know. Called mermaids, <laughs> <laughs> called mermaids yock yawk a name that may refer to their mesmerizing songs.
1: Ah, yes. And <laughs> mermaids first colonized New York, which is why they called it New York. Ah! <laughs> ah,
2: the belief in mermaids may have arisen at the very dawn of our species. <laughs> Magical female figures first appear in cave paintings in the late Paleolithic Stone Age period some 30,000 years ago when modern humans gained dominion over the land and presumably began to sail the seas. Excuse <laughs> Half-human creatures called chimeras... Also abound in mythology. In addition to mermaids, there were wise centaurs, wild satyrs, frightful minotaurs, to name but a few.
1: But our mermaids—that for an
2: upcoming episode, I Um, know—that I already started on, and I hate it. I'm so freaked out. Okay, so scary. But are mermaids real? No evidence of aquatic humanoids has ever been found. Why, then, do they occupy the collective unconscious of nearly all seafaring peoples? That's a question best left to historians, philosophers, and anthropologists. So, thank you, NOAA. We'll take it from here. (laughs) So, I mean, props to answering, but... True. Yes, absolutely. They are in service of the ocean, and so this is outside their wheelhouse. So, um, but they are in Poseidon's domain. (laughs) So, see, (laughs) so, um, all right. So, since we're handing it over to the anthropologists, Anna, can you tell me about the aquatic
1: ape theory and how it corroborates the existence of mermaids? (laughs) And now, another installment (laughs) of things that Amber knew would make me grumpy. This is from a piece by Peter Reese Evans for the scientist.com. Doctor. Yes, Dr. Doctor. Peter Reese Evans.
2: Like actual, literal Dr. Peter Reese well, Evans. Well, yeah, that's,
1: I was going to get into that because yeah. <laughs> Dr. Peter Reese Evans does not hold a degree in archaeology or anthropology, nor any field related to that. He is an otolaryngologist. Otolaryngo- how does the G go in there? Otolaryngologist? He's an ear, nose, throat guy.
2: Just like continuing on the theme of people just drifting out of their lane. <laughs> <Like>
1: it's, <laughs> it's okay. So Yeah. He is in a dinghy far away from his lane, but he <laughs> has some theories and in fact, put those theories into a book. Which is not a book club book for this episode. <laughs> but he wrote a piece for the And so I'm going to read from that piece and then periodically, obnoxiously break in to editorialize. So wow, it was so fun. For the past, I got so mad writing this. <laughs> <laughs> I had a for great the, time. <laughs> just this part For the past 150 years, scientists and lay people alike have accepted a savannah scenario of human evolution. The theory, primarily based on fossil evidence, suggests that because our ancestral ape family members were living in the trees of East African forests, and because we humans live on terra firma, our primate ancestors simply came down from the trees onto the grasslands and stood upright to see farther over the vegetation, increasing their efficiency as hunter-gatherers. In the late 19th century, anthropologists only had a few Neanderthal p- fossils to study, and science had very little knowledge of genetics and evolutionary changes. So this savanna theory of human evolution became ingrained in anthropological dogma and has remained the established explanation of early hominin evolution following the genetic split from our primate cousins six to seven million years ago. Okay, here goes me. That is actually a pretty incomplete and bad explanation of the Savannah hypothesis. The idea was that our early ancestors lived arboreal lives in trees, bopping around in central and eastern African rainforests. Then, the climate, the climate rhymes with primate, our our climate ancestors, Our, our primate climate ancestors, then the climate shifted so that the habitat became mostly open grassland and the hominins went with the flow, adapting to bipedalism out of necessity as their arboreal habitats disappeared. So his explanation that they just sort of came down from the trees and went, well, okay, Uh, that's not how evolution works. Except now there's also plenty of evidence that this is not what happened. I will do the short version of this tirade since this is not an episode on bipedalism. But based on fossils of very early hominins like Ardipithecus ramidus, a species that was kicking around the Afar region of eastern Africa around 4.4 million years ago, the transition to bipedal walking was more of a mosaic of traits that gradually accumulated to what we see in the bodies of bipedal hominins, so us and in the bones of extinct species. And I want to shout out here the work of a friend of mine, Cody Prang, who paper we're going to link to in the show notes, but he's done a whole bunch of research recently on the feet of Ardipithecus ramidus and showed aspects of how that species' locomotion worked. It's very Mm. cool work. So shout out to Cody. So Ardipithecus had some arboreal features that were more like monkeys, but some aspects of the feet, legs, and hips that showed that the species was already spending some time on the ground. And so this was in forested habitat. So even though Ardipithecus was living mostly arboreally, and lived in a, a very treeish, rainforesty habitat. They were spending some time on the ground already, walking bipedally the way that chimps can if they want to. They just don't walk the same way that humans do. So a better version of this hypothesis is that a shift in the global climate caused the local forest environment to become fragmented, with patches of forest separated by bits of grassland. So as this transition occurred, it forced early hominins to scoot from forest patch to forest patch when they wanted to get to a new set of resources or a new place to live. And it was in their adaptive best interests to do that scooting on two legs, because these hominins wouldn't have been the size of you and me. They would have been maybe three, three and a half feet tall, if that. So that tall savanna grass really presented a problem if they wanted to be able to see predators. So the adaption to bipedalism occurred much more gradually than the first version of the hypothesis that Reese Evans states. So this more (laughs) gradual mosaic habitat version is the hypothesis that generally has support among researchers of this sort of thing. So the fact that the author of this piece and a book about this stuff didn't really get it right, despite writing his article in 2020, gives me pause. But then again, given the actual theory we're discussing, I'm not surprised. So I will continue with Reese Evans's writing quote, but in 1960, a different twist on human evolution emerged. That year, marine biologist Sir Alistair Hardy wrote an article in New Scientist suggesting a possible aquatic phase in our evolution, noting Homo sapiens' differences from other primates and similarities to other aquatic and semi-aquatic mammals. Yes, we are notably more similar to manatees than chimpanzees. In 1967, zoologist Desmond Morris published The Naked Ape, which explored different theories about why modern humans lost their fur. Morris mentioned Hardy's aquatic ape hypothesis as an ingenious theory that sufficiently explained why we are so nimble in the water today, haven't seen me trying to swim, and why our closest living relatives, the chimpanzees, are so helpless and quickly drown. End quote. So, That was the quote from uh, Morris. And so back to Reese Evans. In 1992, I published a paper describing a curious ear condition, colloquially known as surfer's ear, which I and other ear, nose and throat doctors frequently see in clinics. Exostoses are small bones that grow in the outer ear canal, but only in humans who swim and dive on a regular, almost daily basis. In modern humans, there is undisputed evidence of oral exostoses in people who swim and dive, with the size and extent being directly dependent on the frequency and length of exposure to water, as well as its temperature. I predicted that if e- these exostoses were found in early hominin skulls, it would provide vital fossil evidence for frequent swimming and diving by our ancestors. Researchers have now found these features in 2-million-year-old hominin skulls, and in a recent study on nearly two dozen Neanderthal skulls, about 47% had exostoses. Okay, so hi, me again, (laughs) popping in. So yes, lots of Neanderthal skulls have these features, as do early humans, but what Reese Evans neglects to say is that these exostoses could also be explained by repeated and prolonged exposure to chilly, wet environments, like, say, caves or most of Europe in certain seasons. And if you want, we'll have this linked in the show notes. I wrote a piece for Sapiens about exactly this. So I sort of know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> Re Evans continues. In my opinion, the accumulated fossil, anatomical, and physiological evidence about early hominin evolution points to our human ancestors learning to survive as semi-aquatic creatures in a changing East African environment. After transitioning to bipedalism, ancient hominins had both forelimbs free from aiding in walking, which may have allowed for increasing manual dexterity and skills. Perhaps a marine diet with lipoproteins that are essential for brain development fueled the unique intellectual advances and ecological dominance of homo sapiens. So, Dr. Reese Evans, while I'm sure your work as an otolaryngologist has helped a lot of people, I very strongly disagree with everything you wrote there.
2: Yeah. That's that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) And also, um, this should put to rest... Any ideas that that one might have when you say like, oh, perhaps this is something that is like some like deep sort of like species level memory Oh yeah. of, of sort like of like the
1: primal brain.
2: Yeah. Like it's that's not what's happening here. No. Um, we just got I, ear infections.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So exostoses are caused by sort of repeated ear infections or repeated ear clogs. Um, and the bone growth is just sort of uh, the body's response. It's not. Ugh, it's not that. It's not the aquatic apes. And also, speaking of apes, uh, Reese Evans mentioned that chimpanzees we can swim, but chimpanzees can't. Chimpanzees are very dense; like they're mostly muscle. We have a lot more fat deposits, mm, uh, we float so better. if they, yeah, if they hop in the water, they're so dense that they have a lot of trouble swimming, um, and they can easily drown. That is true, but um, it's not to do with the divergence in our species. It just has <laughs> to do with, well, I mean, it does, but it has to do with how our body fat. Is distributed relative to theirs. Good point. So, thank you. Thank well, you.
2: Now that Anna's mad, <laughs> ah! let's let's take a quick second to recommend an article in Wired, uh, Wired magazine, by Matt Simon, entitled "Fantastically Wrong: The Murderous, Sometimes Sexy History of the Mermaid," um, which outlines some early mer myths and follows them from the <laughs> Sumerian god. Gu- you can't make jokes when I'm <laughs> drinking my kombucha. <laughs> Um, <clears> uh, and follows them from the Sumerian god Ea, he himself, kind of a fish dude, uh, up through our friend <laughs> and the subject
1: of that of that Snoop Dogg song. Ea, oh my God!
2: Through our friend Olus Magnus, whom you'll meet shortly, and mm-hmm. others, including this excerpt from Christopher Columbus's diary in 1493. Quote. The day before, when the admiral was going to the Rio del Oro, he said that he saw three mermaids who came quite high out of the water, but were not as pretty as they are depicted. For somehow, in the face, they look like men. "End quote." The admiral said, "I like what a what a what a weird take. What a thing to say. <laughs> I know. Yeah, bummed that they weren't hot enough because they looked like dudes. I don't know. Like it's also like on top of." everything else he's like kind of also like homophobic like homophobically well, insecure they aren't pretty yeah, in- because they look yeah. like men I mean, maybe yeah. they were maybe they were like in the pisces a novel which i recommend to everyone oh and my explained god in like
1: <laughs> gruesome too, detail to too Anna. much detail
2: <laughs> there's a very pretty mermaid in that who is a man Oh, oh man! man. Um, so God. back to the uh, the Wired article. Simon goes on to say, "Quote: In reality, the admiral had likely seen a manatee, and indeed, it was strange creatures like these—a group known tellingly as the Cyrenians, that also includes a dugongs, cute little big guys—that yeah. explorers yeah. encountered as they made their way around the world. Sadly, they ended up driving the most incredible Cyrenian to extinction: Stellar sea cow." At an astonishing thirty three feet long and twenty four thousand pounds.
1: Wow. It
2: was twenty times heavier than the manatee. And like also looked kind of mannish.
1: Well that's the reason why it's not called a womanatee. A
2: womanatee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that I have a stuffed manatee at home and his name is Hugh? So he's Hugh Manatee. It's cute. Thank you.
2: But because it was so large, it never needed to fear predators. Before humans,
1: by the turn of the 19th century, it was gone, and they were also apparently really delicious. Like that was their main problem. Yeah, yeah.
2: but it was the dugongs that were likely the source of the myth in the first place. They swim in the waters around what used to be the former Syrian and Babylonian empires, and could well have inspired the half-human, half-fish gods Atargatis, which is a Syrian goddess, fish lady, and Atargatis. Atargatis, yeah. And as Michael Largo notes in his big bad book of beasts, the mermaid as a bad omen could come from ships sailing too close to shore where Sirenians congregate only to run aground because when in doubt, blame the, the harmless aquatic mammal, end quote. And so now that we've got mermaids out of the way, <laughs> let's take a break and then dive into the other fishy fellows of today's show and possibly end up getting Exostoses in our ears after doing so. Here's an ad. Oh no!
0: <laughs> it's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website CulturoMedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's CulturoMedia.com for all our live events and more. KulturoMedia.com.
1: And Amber, I truly don't remember how we arrived at the idea of a fish I people do. episode. What what, did, what happened? So we were coming up with, I, this was when we had that
2: like three hour meeting about yeah. episode topics. And you're yeah, we yeah. like, oh, there's that one, that one with the fish people, that one site with the fish people. And I, in like that way <laughs> oh, that no. I do, was like, oh no, this is my fault. <laughs> like fish people. Yes, definitely. Fish. And I wrote fish people in all caps and was just like, we're going with it. And then when we oh, came no. back to it, we are like, you came up with that. One and I came up with what's going to be the last thing we talk about on this episode, uh, and so I think this might be like incredibly telling about the two of us. So that's that's why we ended up with fish people, okay. And I think but everyone will agree that this is
1: our greatest episode. It's certainly our fishiest. Speaking of the archaeological site that got us here, I guess come with me, everyone, to Lepenski Vir, an important Mesolithic site on the banks of the Danube River in what is today Serbia. The site is notable for a few reasons. It seems to have been the meeting place of two Mesolithic cultures, resulting in an interesting blend of artifacts, behavior, and lifeways. And this site also has a complex and uniform floor plan, which is sort of unusual for this period. So here's a bit from Atlas Obscura. Quote, while most human cultures have developed architectural elements based on rectangular or circular layouts, lipensky Vir buildings have a layout which is based on elaborate geometry of equilateral triangle grid and 60-degree circle sections. It appears that this kind of floor plan was constructed using an intricate compass and straight-edge technique, indicating that inhabitants of lipensky Vir possessed the understanding of geometry seemingly much greater than their hunter-gatherer lifestyle would require. I know, but it's rude.
2: I d- my, my lifestyle doesn't require
1: geometry, but I did OK on the GREs. I'm not a fan of that take, but let's keep going. Okay, Veer is also home to a number of unique sculptures that have a distinctly fishy look about them. In fact, they look quite a bit like the supporting character fish in SpongeBob SquarePants. Supporting character fish? Yeah, like all of the fish that are just like. Hanging out and not the main cast in Bikini Bottom? The the fish extras. The fish extras. (laughs) They look the Lipensky Veer sculptures look like fish extras. James Gorman, writing for the New York Times, has some takes. He writes, quote, The faces are haunting. About 8,000 years ago, over a period of perhaps 200 years, artists that lived in this settlement on the banks of the Danube carved about 100 sandstone boulders with faces and abstract designs. The faces are simple, with wide, round eyes, a stylized nose, and downturned, open mouths. They do not look happy. Archaeologists say the heads seem to be a mixture of human and fish features accounting for their strangeness. Some designs look like fish skeletons. The gorges and pools in this part of the Danube were long a home to sturgeon and other large fish that sustained human life. Perhaps a fishing people imagined their souls migrating into fish after death. James! And
2: and these statues are like, represent... The like moment, like the process where they're like,
1: ah, of, like the this, fish they're, quickening. They're, they're warefish. <laughs> yeah. They transform. Oh. Many of these sculptures were kept in strange trapezoidal dwellings with hard limestone floors. In some cases, the dead lay buried under the homes. So the sculptures might have represented ancestors. I take this as consistent with my interpretation. You die and suddenly you're a sturgeon. What's your first question? My, my question, James, is... <laughs> What, where What's are you going, going with this? <laughs> what are you doing, bud? I called Dusan Boric. Boric or Boric? I don't know. Yeah, apologies to this person. I called Dusan Boric, an archaeologist who has studied the site extensively to find out more. Dr. Boric, Boric a fellow at Columbia University's Italian Academy for Advanced Studies, said lipinski Vir is more important than ever for research. Studies of ancient DNA that trace patterns of human migration into Europe, chemical analyses of bones and pottery, and continuing archaeological studies of burial practices place the site at the very moment when farmers from the Near East began to migrate into southeastern Europe and met the hunters and gatherers who lived there at the time. Lipensky Vier offers a snapshot of that process at its very beginning. (laughs) <laughs> the inescapable David Reich, <laughs> my editorialization, an expert in ancient human DNA and human migration at Harvard, has drawn DNA from bones at Lipensky Vier. He's just the DNA guy, so he shows up in every big DNA study. In a paper published in the journal Nature in 2018, he and other scientists reported new findings about the genomic history of Southeastern Europe. It was fish. As part, <laughs> turns out, fish. As part of that study, they drew DNA from four individuals, human ones, at lipensky Two were identifiable as Near Eastern farmers, and studies of the chemistry of their bones show that they had not grown up at lipensky but were migrants from elsewhere. Another had a mixed hunter-gatherer and farmer heritage, and had eaten a diet of fish. Another just had hunter-gatherer heritage. That was a weird ending to that paragraph. Another indication of the merging of two cultures is a change in burial practices. Throughout Europe, the Mesolithic foragers laid a body down, stretched out. The migrant farmers from the Near East brought another way of treating death, setting the body in a crouched or fetal position. Both practices are found at lipensky and when the burial practices are combined with DNA profiles, the picture is richer still. Some of the dead of Near Eastern heritage are buried in the way of the foragers, and others of foraging heritage are buried in the way of the farmers. In neighboring settlements, also of fishing people, but not fish people, also where farmers came and met and married foragers, there are some sculptures with designs like those found on the Lipinski-Vier stone heads, but none of the nearby sculptures have bases. The farmers did not bring them with them. The hunter-gatherers did not make them before the farmers came, and they did not spread to the rest of Europe. And so, Amber, in the lipinski Vir fish people heads, we are left with a fishy mystery. Mm. Perhaps they are a red herring. Oh, gosh.
2: Well done. I'm glad you found a place for that. But they did eat some fish. And you know what they, they, did. they say. I do. You are what you eat. And perhaps no one took that platitude more seriously than my boy Herodotus. So, Herodotus was the first to describe the ichthyophagoi or the ichthyophagi, depending on whether you're speaking Greek or Latin, um, which translates literally to the fish eaters. Uh, so, in the histories, which was his. It was basically an armchair travel guide to the known world of the 5th century BCE, Greece. Herodotus describes him as living along the Gulf Coast. So when I say Gulf Coast, I mean the coast of what is known variously as the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf. Sometimes it's just known as the Gulf. This is very, it's political no matter how you cut it, but it's this, it's this place. Um, On this Gulf... (laughs) It was on the Makran coast of what is today Iran, so the the southern coast of Iran that's facing what is today the United Arab Emirates and Oman. Um, so this was the Erythraean Sea or the Red Sea, which is not the Red Sea that we know today. Huh? This is this the this, this is get ready because it's like fifteen hundred years of people being like which which one? Um, so Herodotus said, quote. Such are the customs of the Babylonians generally. There are likewise three tribes among them who eat nothing but fish. These are caught and dried in the sun, after which they are brayed in a mortar and strained through a linen sieve. Some prefer to make cakes of this material, while others bake it into a kind of bread. So this is in book one. Uh, Fish bread. Wow. How quirky. It's keto. I don't know. I've had
1: gefilte fish. I'm not impressed.
2: Yeah, so that's sort of starting with because like, Herodotus, people say that Herodotus like wasn't making like commentary on what people were doing, but it is sort of like the very nature of the histories is like, let me tell you about Asians. There are so many oh, yeah. kinds of Asian, and they're all wild. Like that's that's the history. <laughs> Can you believe? So, um, but this one, it's just sort of like, oh, that's. That's so, that's so different. Yeah. Like it's wow. just sort of, it's Fish kind of that, like, like that, like kind of patronizing. Wow. Like that's sort of the, the voice of Herodotus. So a oh, few boy. centuries later, around 30 BCE, Diodorus Siculus, Diodorus Siculus wrote his extremely long, extremely long and extremely extra history. And he, it was like 40 volumes. It's <laughs> so big. That's too many. Of of like the Mediterranean. Um, And so he had his own things to say about about the Ichthyophagoi. No longer were they living along the coast of the Gulf. They were living along the coast of what we consider to be the actual Red Sea. And he was much ruder about them, saying... Quote. And first, we shall speak of the ichthyophages, who inhabit the sea coasts all, all along as far as from Carmania and Gedrosia to the uttermost point of the Red Sea, which runs up into the land in an incredible long way. And at the entrance into it lies bounded on one side with Arabia the Happy. This is Arabia Felix. Um, this is. So there's Arabia Felix and Arabia Deserta. Arabia Felix is what is now Yemen and parts of Saudi. It's where and parts of Oman. It's where incense was cultivated. And that's in contrast to Arabia Deserta, which is the rest of the Arabian Peninsula. So those those are what those two things are. So Arabia the happy and with the country of the troglodytes on the other. Those are people who live in caves. Yep. So Some of the barbarians go stark naked, and their wives and children are so common among them as their flocks and herds. They know nothing either of pleasure or sorrow, but what is natural, like brute beasts, and have no apprehension either of good (laughs) or evil. They inhabit not far from the very brink of the seashore, where they are not only... Where there are not only deep caves, but craggy cliffs, and straight and narrow valleys, divided naturally into many crooked windings and turnings, which being of their own nature useful to the inhabitants, they make up the passages both in and out with heaps of great stones, and make use of those places instead of nets to catch their fish. Oh. For when the tide comes in and overflows the coast, as it does twice every day, about the third and ninth hour, and the sea covers the strand up to the brinks of the banks, together with the tide, it brings in a vast number of all sorts of fish within the land, which at the first are kept within those parts next to the sea, but afterwards, for food, dis- disperse themselves about those hollow caverns. But when the tide ebbs and the water by degrees leaves the hollows and reflows through the heaps of stones, the food Fish within those caverns are less de- left destitute of water.
1: That's not a very flattering description of the people, but it's interesting. It's an interesting description of fish weirs, which yeah. are a real thing.
2: Yeah. So,
1: um, yeah.
2: So it's sort of like you can learn some stuff about like technologies and like traditions, but also like rude. Um, so this trend continues. Um uh, of the Ichthyophagoi showing up in various places and being really uncivilized, like really distant from the author and really into eating fish. And so I recommend you check out this post on a a blog called Esoterics. And it's called the Ichthyophagoi, Fishing for Monstrosity and Alexander Romances. Anna, I'm going to explain to folks, but are you familiar with Alexander Romances? I'm familiar with Harlequin romances. Mm, then get ready. So Alexander romances are, it's a genre of uh, sort of early middle, like late antique, early middle ages and medieval writing. So it's during that time where um, a lot of classical literature was lost, What was either like, destroyed or like knowledge of Greek and Latin had been lost but like for the most part and so what really what really came through um were stories of Alexander the Great traveling to India and sort of going east and they they got most of the details wrong but the idea was that he went somewhere really far away it was bonkers and Mm -hmm. he civilized them And so that became a, um, it became just like a genre. And so it's just people writing about that and they had sick illustrations. And so they would all be like (laughs) uh, like heavily illustrated, like illuminated. And so you would have the Alexander uh, romance, but uh, like Alexander going out and doing all this stuff and like going out and like, like there being... um, like it's passing through gardens that just like had gems hanging off instead of fruit, just stuff like that. And so there's like gorgeous illustrations and illustrations of like these cr- crazy beasts and like all those I do love a medieval things. bestiary. Yeah. So it's a lot like a bestiary, but it's mostly just this like completely like fabulous story about Alexander, who we vaguely know who he was. He was a great king and he like invented you know, being a king or something, you know, just like people, that king. Yeah. Um, so, but he meets various people on his, on his campaign. So he meets various people as he's conquering Asia. And a lot of them are the kinds of people that you've met in the histories or, and, um, Theodorus siculus so like those kind of
1: those things these kind of come. people through. have only one giant foot and they hop around everywhere and these people have giant ants that mine for gold yeah they <laughs> you live in india yeah like so you've got that so that stuff
2: comes through because not everything was lost completely it just wasn't for more pub- general consumption So, by the 7th or 8th century CE, so it doesn't even take that long, they've evolved into something, like the the Ichthyophagoi have evolved into something completely inhuman. So, according to the Anglo-Saxon bestiary, the Liber Monstorum... Monster book. (laughs) Book of monsters. Monstrous book. This author writes... And in India, next to the ocean, we have learnt of a certain race of humans, hairy in their whole body, who are said to live on water and raw fish, covered in natural nakedness by only only by bristles, like wild animals. And the Indians call them ichthyophagi, fish eaters. And they are not only accustomed to the land, but dwell in streams and ponds and are mostly next to the river Epigmaris. Hmm. Just to wrap this up. Excited for this last left. part. Somebody left a comment on this post that calls back to two episodes that we've done in the past. So our Giants episode and our Cryptoanthropology episode, writing, quote, The hairy Ichthy- Ichthyophagi may have been a variety of Bigfoot called the Alma or Almasti, which are rather than monsters, would be classified today as prehuman or humanoid. There is the interesting story about Zana, found in the Caucasus who mated with male humans and had six offspring cool cool story bro yep the two tent poles of this episode are two amazing comments that i found
0: <laughs> this is chris webster at the apn i'm also a project manager for several industries i wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion with motion i just say what i need to do how long i think it will take what sort of priority i think it has and motion builds my day for me It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T-Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link.
1: Well, we're back. But before we set aside the ichthyophagoy altogether, we have one more, perhaps unlikely location where they lived. Iceland. Or maybe it's not such a surprise that the mostly coastal inhabitants of an island ate a bunch of fish. First, First this was their whole personality. It defines them. Yeah. If they were on dating ass, they would be like, I eat fish. <laughs> I'm a fish guy now. <laughs> First, a quick biography, though, of the man we have to thank for his writings on the Icelandic ich- Ichthyophagoi, Olaus Magnus, or Olaf Manson, before his name was Latinized. So Amber mentioned him a little while ago, and here we are. So Alas was Swedish, but he, he left Sweden uh, at an early age. But he obviously thought a lot about Sweden. And he spent many years laboring over two publications about his homeland and its oceanic surroundings, a woodblock map titled Carta Marina, printed in Venice in 1539, and a book titled Historia de Gentibus Septentrionalibus. That's a lot of syllables. Or, History of the Northern Peoples, published in Rome in 1555. Uh, what might be the only surviving portrait of Olaus occurs in his history, where he appears as a strapping mountaineer clad in primitive snowshoes, just like his horse. As in, his horse was also clad in snowshoes. Very <laughs> strapping, <laughs> strapping horse. horse. Yeah. He wasn't a fish guy, he was a horse guy. Olaus devoted whole chapters of the history to explaining figures in his map, Carta Marina, printed on nine separate sheets. It's like a collectible set of like centerfolds, in, in, <laughs> like Nachio or something. It measured roughly four feet high by five feet wide. At the time it was printed, it was, in the words of mythological animal expert Joseph Nigg, quote, the largest, most accurate and most detailed map of Scandinavia or any European region at that time. The map covered land areas of Scandinavia, dotted with landmarks and vignettes of human inhabitants. The land areas of the map also featured largely realistic pictures of recognizable animals, but the watery areas depicted on the map were different. The sea in Olaus's map teemed with fantastic monsters. And mermaids. Mersens. Renaissance maps, rich in sea monsters, were not necessarily the maps consulted by ship captains. Historian Chet Van Duzer. Wait, what are you? Yeah, it was that wasn't for like people who actually needed to get around. Oh, that is a great name. Oh, oh yeah, he's friends with Jeep Vanderhunk. Chet Van Duzer. Yeah, uh, historian Chet Van Uh Duzer. That's his first name. His (laughs) first name, historian. (laughs) (laughs) His parents had dreams for him. To Mr. and Mrs. Van Duser, a son, historian. (laughs) 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 Sorry, Chet, historian. Uh, He explains that the monsters decorating many maps really were decorations, and the people purchasing those maps had to pay extra for the exotic little creatures. So sea monsters were perhaps more likely to appear on maps hanging on the walls of libraries owned by people who didn't have to rough it across the ocean. But Nig explains that in the case of Carta Marina... Olaus apparently did mean to show animals he believed were real, because he marked the creatures with letters on his map and provided detailed descriptions in a key in the lower left corner. Sea monsters, occurring on maps, became Olaus's lasting legacy. Images borrowed from his Carta Marina... Nope. Images borrowed from his Carta Marina recurred in later maps by Abraham Ortelius and Sebastian Munster. Oh, that's a great name for a guy who's going to draw beasties. Munster?
2: Yeah. And proliferated... His books. His books. The
1: Monsterum. Nice. I should have been more bold with it. (laughs) (laughs) Carpe that joke. Uh, Olaus also wrote a cookbook called Carta Marinara. (laughs) (laughs) He make it a sauce. Okay. Oh, no. Uh, So those monsters proliferated in the encyclopedic works of Conrad Gesner and Edward Topsell, Although many of Olaus's descriptions beggared belief, the kraken supposedly has horns as big as uprooted trees, eyes as wide as 10 cubits, and the sea unicorn could destroy ships. Some were likely based on actual animals, even if his pictures and written descriptions of them were exaggerated. So what did our boy Olaus have to say about the Icelandic fish eaters? It takes a while to get to the fishy part of this nugget, because this excerpt is titled On the Wonderful Supply of Butter <laughs> in Iceland. <laughs> it's not a loss rights. Again, in Iceland may be found <laughs> such an abundant supply of salted butter, owing to the numerous herds of cattle and the luxuriant pastures, that there are insufficient barrels and kegs to hold it all. They bake fish smeared with this butter and eat it on many occasions instead of bread. Hence, they are also called ichthyophagoi. And later, I shall tell you about the buildings they construct from the ribs and other bones of sea beasts, which that's a a legit detail because whales, whale bones from beached whales and and other large marine mammals were used as construction materials because not a lot of trees in that Some of the classical authors talk about that, too. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what butter eaters would be in Latin, like oleophagoi. That's, it's oil, but... Yeah, well, that was that was fun.
2: <laughs> yeah. um, and so I've got one last fish man for you. Man, <laughs> uh, very silly. <laughs> and this time it's from Mesopotamia. Color um, me shocked. <laughs> so let's talk about the Opkalu. Let's. The Opkalu, as it was known in Akkadian, it was Abgal in Sumerian. Um, is something that you might be able to call to mind if you've ever seen the huge, huge, huge wall reliefs associated with new Assyrian palaces. On a recent episode, I talked about crying over one. They include massive dudes with wings or perhaps eagle-headed men with sick calves, sometimes holding a basket in one hand and a coney thing in the other. And sometimes they're just hanging out. When you say
1: sick calves, you're talking anatomical feature, not like a, a baby cow who's having a bad day.
2: No, like they—they've like, they, got they had to be. Like, they leg
1: day. They did leg day
2: every day is leg day. If you're in Fkalu, okay. Um, but yeah, just like not to be like a real Irene Winter about it, but like no. great definition. No. <laughs> um, so, Fkalu is a concept as much as it is a profession, uh, and the English translation Assyriologists are working with is something like sage or wise one or perhaps expert so it's it's something they're like the embodiment of wisdom but also somebody who's got that wisdom and so they aren't quite deities they definitely aren't human because of the whole like wings and eagle head and stuff yeah I think that um, is. thank you uh, but they brought wisdom to the early humans of mythology and so their images were used for apotropaic or spiritual purposes in palaces on plaques in cylinder seals and other places so the best-known images of Apkalu, as I alluded to just now, are from palaces, uh, the winged guys and the eagle men, uh, but they're also Apkalu that, you guessed it, are half-fish. <laughs> so to get a little bit more context, Anna, let's visit your old professor and mine, Mehmet Ali Atach, and his book, The Mythology of
1: Kingship and Neo-Assyrian Art. Oh... <laughs> the lecture class I had with him was in a giant lecture hall that was always dim. And it was so sleepy. In it there. was late <laughs> in the day. I, I respect his scholarship greatly, but he's boy, could I not brilliant. stay stay he's, awake in that he's class? Brilliant. He truly um, is. But I'm oh, so sleepy. And, and like,
2: as as you'll see, we're gonna I'm gonna read a little bit from his book, and this is kind of the vibe that he brings to the class. Like, great, great really respect him really loved this stuff but this like did bring like some flashbacks to like my senior seminar on like the concept of time <laughs> and the <laughs> exegeries <laughs> just just like, like opened some doors i think i would have preferred staying closed in my mind <laughs> um but he writes the fish Apkalu is more frequent in other artistic media than on palace reliefs. In addition to foundation deposit figurines, we're going to talk about one in a second, <laughs> he appears on protective plaques and cylinder seals on which he is shown engaged in a variety of activities such as flanking the sacred tree or healing the sick. One wonders if as a matter of decorum, the supervisor of Asher, supervisors of Ashurnasirpal's relief program deemed the human and bird-headed Apkalu more appropriate for the representative of the supernatural presence in the palace where like the kingness and sort of the the holiness
1: of kingship tough to depict Um, the nobility of kingship with with a fish
2: yeah (laughs) whereas the fish of were more at home in certain other media such as seals plaques (laughs) basins and presumably in certain ritual contexts such as healing and exorcism um Beyond the apotropaic, the appearance of various forms of the Apkalus in art should evoke concepts associated with a particular kind of wisdom and knowledge thought to have been possessed by a vanished generation of antediluvian sages and handed on to post-diluvian umanus, masters or scholars. In Sumerian, the possessor of knowledge of a special kind was called an abgal or umea. A Canadian borrowed these terms in the form of Apkalu and Umanu, respectively. In the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian kingless tradition, each antediluvian king was matched with a spiritual advisor, an Apkalu. Who got the fish? Well done. Um, for example, the Warka king list cites antediluvian kings with their Apkallus, followed by a list of historical kings with their Umanus. So this is something that I had mentioned, I think maybe even last week, as an analogy, where you have these yeah. king lists yep,
1: you did. that there is a point. History where, goes back so far that it merges into myth.
2: Yeah. And so you have you, the ant. So the Great Flood is sort of this, this line, this delineation in history. Um, and so I'll get to that in a second. So according to Helga Helga Hanvig, there may originally have been two separate traditions, one dealing with antediluvian kings and the other with primeval sages. Mm-hmm. And the two were later merged in what can be regarded as a comprehensive view of the primeval antediluvian period. So, If you want a whole lot more about the mythology at play in Neo-Assyrian royal art and more, uh, do check out this book. I like this kind of stuff, but let's review. Apkalu lived in the antediluvian times, before the Great Flood, in the time of myths, and Umanu served a parallel role to the real-life historical kings of
1: Mesopotamia. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. Is Umanu a role of a mythical figure or is that an actual person who served an ad- so, advisorial role okay. to a king?
2: If we are following this logic, like mm-hmm. this understanding, like the Umanu is a a person or a station or a role in the it's like it's sort of it is they like a, a kind of spiritual advisor, but so a live human that kind being of, who has that a role. real a, a real a real human umanu works with and for a real human king. But they have just like, in the spiritual, just world. like in in sort of the antediluvian kings, they had kalus who helped okay. them out. Got it, and they they may have been more deity adjacent then because as were the antediluvian kings. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So does that make sense? It does. I just wanted to clarify. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So were represented in a variety of ways, including our titular fish people. Uh, This image is So, so good. In those cases, and I cannot stress this enough, they look like buff men
1: with beards wearing carps. Okay, so picture the classic statue of Heracles where he is this massive muscly dude wearing the lion skin so that the head of the lion is over him and the rest of the lion skin forms the cloak. Okay, now do that but fish.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's so it's... So very good. The, so carp, the, the carp that live in the, like, Tiger's Euphrates basin, like they're big. Yeah. And like the national, the national dish of Iraq, Iraq is like a type of it's a carp dish. Interesting. And so someone has taken a carp and it, it appears like this is like a very literal image. Yeah. Whereas we've got like, you know, you've got like the um, you got like the the Apkalu who are like eagle headed or they've got wings, and it's just like all very like we are definitely like trafficking in like the mythical and here you've just got this literal dude fish with like with like a belt on and someone has split a carp as if to clean it yep and then just put its head over his head with its little fish mouth open. he has entered a carpal tunnel oh nice <laughs>
1: um
2: so this is so this is one um if i remember correctly this is from a
1: ninurta temple yeah in, and i'll post um, these images on instagram after this episode yeah. comes out
2: um and it's in it it's in Nimrod. Cool. Um, and then the next one. Um, The next (laughs) image that I also want Anna to describe to me, um, it comes from the British Museum. The British Museum has six of seven, because there's this idea of the seven sages, Uh, like the seven antediluvian sages. And so they would do foundational deposits, like when you are are erecting a building, like whether it be a a palace or a temple or other buildings that did exist in antiquity, but for (laughs) a long time, Mesopotamian archaeologists didn't care about. Only palace and temple. But what about house? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did someone important live there? Um, so you want to put this in the in the foundation as you're building it to sort of kind of consecrate the space, protect the yeah. space, consecrate the space. Um, and so they are, so we'll include those. And so this was found somewhere, they thought, somewhere around Nineveh, which is one of those provenances that you're
1: like, Aww. <laughs> <laughs> So Anna, what do these look like? They look much. I mean, these are instead of being a bas relief, these are three dimensional little sculptures, and it mm-hmm. looks like little dudes who. It's, it's interesting that a mullet is also a type of fish because these are businessman in front, party fish in back. Yeah, and so it's
2: just um, they are just again little dudes the, inside spl- fishies split the carp down the tummy and you just stick a guy in it and his his face is sticking out and his beard sticking out and he's got his his hands holding something. sort of like fist on top of fist holding something like it looks like he's holding like a microphone
1: <laughs> like this guy in a fish costume is singing the national anthem have you ever done that with a peanut where you split the peanut open and you see the little guy with the beard inside what so <laughs> just, just me <laughs> Okay, so if you have a roasted roasted peanut and you take the peanut out of the shell and then you, you know, peanuts are legumes, so they split in two. Right. If Uh you split them in two, you see the little nubbin of what was going to be the like sprout of the peanut plant, if that had grown. And it looks like a little man with a beard. And that is exactly what this looks like to me. Listeners, grab yourself some peanuts unless you're allergic. Please don't do that. I don't know. It's something I learned in like nursery school. I remember I have this really clear memory of someone being like, there's a man in the peanut. Oh, (laughs) God. They didn't Um, say it like that.
2: Yeah. So that's what that's what these are. So they're just (laughs) little fish dudes. So we have in the 9th century BCE, the Apkali reliefs of the Neo-Assyrian kings that Professor attach ties back to a millennia old tradition of Apkali wisdom and knowledge being transferred to the Omanus. And then in the 3rd century BCE, the historian Berossus writes a history of Babylonia in Greek. Um, <laughs> Because this is during the time of Alexander. So his history is lost, but we have a summary of it by Eusebius, who wrote in the third century CE. So Barassus has a story from us for us, not from <laughs> us. So it's quite the story. So this is from Livius. It's Levius, and I just like completely Livius. blanked on it for like years. So this is from Levius. Um, and so I'm gonna read um, sort of their context for it and then uh, read the translation. So the first book of Berossus' Babylonian History begins with the description of the creation of the world and humankind, based on the epic Enuma Elish, so that's the Sumerian creation myth, and includes the, his, the includes the story of Oannes, who is taught who taught wisdom to man, and a Babylonian bestiary. Unfortunately, Berossus' own account is lost, but it was summarized in an Armenian translation of the Chronicon by the Christian author Eusebius. Whoa. So the text, the Armenian text, was translated by Gerald Verbrugge and John Wickersham. And they translate thus. Barossus reports in the first book of his Babylonian history that he was a contemporary of Alexander, the son of Philip, and that many public records, which covered a period of over 150,000 years ago, about the history of the sky and the sea, of creation and of the kings and of their deeds, had been preserved with care. First, he says that the land of the Babylonians lies between the Tigris and the Euphrates. It produces wild barley, chickpea, and sesame, and even, in its marshlands, edible roots called gongai. These roots are the equal of barley and nutrition. The land also produces dates, apples, and all sorts of other fruit, as well as fish and birds, field birds, as well as waterfowl. So far, They're nailing it. Yeah. There are also in the land of the Babylonians waterless and infertile regions near Arabia. While lying opposite Arabia, there are hilly and fertile areas. In Babylonia, there was a large number of people of different ethnic origins who had settled Chaldea. They lived without discipline and order, just like animals. Rude. In the, in the very first year, there appeared from the Red Sea, the Gulf one, in an area bordering on Babylonia, a frightening monster named Oanez. It had the whole body of a fish, but underneath and attached to the head of the fish, there was another head, human, and joined to the tail of the fish feet, like those of a man, and it had a human voice. Its form has been preserved in sculpture to this day. Look like fish, talk
1: like people.
2: (laughs) For us to say. (laughs) <laughs> Reprise. Forresta uh, says that this monster spent its days with men, never eating anything. Very polite. But teaching men the skills necessary for writing and for doing doing mathematics and for all sorts of knowledge. How to build cities, found temples, and make laws. It taught men how to determine borders and divide land. Okay, so... Um, but also how to plant seeds and then to harvest their fruits and vegetables. In short, it taught men all those things conducive to a settled and civilized life. Since that time, nothing further has been discovered. <laughs> no updates, Your Honor. At the end of the day, this monster, Oanus went back into the sea and spent the night. It was amphibious, able to live on land and in the sea. Thanks. Later other monsters similar to Oannes appeared about whom Barassus gave more information in his writings on the kings Barassus says about Oannes that it had been written as follows about the creating about the creating and government of the world and had been given these explanations to man
1: and quote very helpful monster
2: yeah so naturally as is the case with seemingly all Mesopotamian oh, mythology, no. this has been taken up by the ancient aliens folks no. So rather than, this, than seeing this as an English translation of an Armenian translation of a Roman Christian who lived in Syria, Palestine, um, his footnotes about a Hellenistic Babylonian story that's based in a Sumerian myth and a game of telephone thousands of years in the making, it's much more fun to say that this myth is telling us that Oanes, who is actually Uanna in Sumerian, a mythic figure who absolutely comes up. Yeah, like we know who we know yeah, yeah. who he's talking about. Um, he splashed down into the Gulf with his unmentioned spacecraft and flopped out onto land to teach <laughs> the Sumerians how to write and domesticate sheep and levy taxes and all of that. And so if you want to know, because we're running long here, if you want to know more about the Oana's ancient aliens myth and the other ideas that get pulled into it, because boy, sure are there some, um, or perhaps you find yourself in an argument with someone that's not heard the good news about men in fish suits, (laughs) I recommend you check out a post on Jason Colavito's blog, Oana's. The Best Evidence for Ancient Aliens, which will be linked in the show notes. Yeah, and he's a great follow on Twitter also. He is. Um, And then again, to end, (laughs) perhaps you should just let this commenter settle it for you. Here's the other tent pole, I guess. Okay, I'm going to read this as it's written. Oadis wasn't in Babylonian times. It was just in the same region. And Ioannis is not the same as fallen angels from Enoch. The latter are space-traveling flesh and blood people, whereas the Ioannis slash seven sages slash fish slash apkalu slash anidoti were created creatures to help civilize early man. All of the Dogon story. More research required, Mr. Colavito, you lose. Well, that settles
1: that. I love comment sections. <laughs> um, That's all I got. That's it for fish people. That's it that's for that's fish it for me. people. We did it. We did it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will be back in your ears soon with more content, but less fish people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Next more week. people, less fish. You can leave us a review.
2: Please on do so. Apple Podcasts. Um, and you can recommend us to all your fish
1: person friends. And hey, um, uh, since the holidays are coming up, this is a, a great thing to talk to your family about instead of anything else that your family might talk about. Yeah. If you want to end a conversation, maybe bring this up. Yeah. Um, That's what we're here for. Yeah, we got you. Um, You can find us on social media. Yeah, you sure can. On Facebook, we're just The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And we're also in audio form available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your pods. Yeah, and you can find all of that and more and our back catalog
2: and links to merch and links to the Patreon and just links in general over
1: on our website. (laughs) TheDirtPot.com. I just put two new merch designs up on the Dirt Shirt Store. So they're real cute. Check Check them them out. out.
2: Thanks, everybody. Well, we will be back next week. We love you. Goodbye.
1: Fish noises. (laughs) Love. (laughs) Love. Oh, no. (laughs) Goodbye.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.